Well, with the words of Christ, it is finished, ringing in our ears. Let's take our Bibles and turn back to John 19, to that very same context. And we're going to pick up the story of Christ's crucifixion where we left off last time through the words of of the Apostle John, John chapter 19. And we're going to be looking at the very next verse. Chris left off reading there in verse 30 when Jesus said it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And then John continues with these words, John 19 verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was a day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who is seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. And so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Father, we are humbled in the presence of Christ on the cross. Lord, what an undeserved privilege it is for us to have your word and to have it explained to us and applied to our hearts. And Lord, thank you for the privilege of giving me to do that every Sunday here at this church. And I pray that as we seek to understand this passage and what it means and how it Uh, should change the way we live our lives or impact the way we live our lives, Lord, today, that you would grant us grace, that we would not just be merely hearers of your word, but doers, Lord, as we seek to be more conformed to the image of the one that we love and adore, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to look here at how John described the end of that infamous day that changed the world forever. And as you read through John's account of the death of Jesus Christ, I think you'll agree that it's obvious that he was being very careful to emphasize how this entire event, down to the smallest, seemingly uh, insignificant details, played out exactly as the Old Testament said it would. And we've already seen him make this statement or include this phrase that the scripture might be fulfilled. And notice back in verse 24, 
of John uh, 19. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, quote, they divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Then again in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. And then again here in our text this morning, verse 36, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, quote, not a bone of him shall be broken. I mentioned a a few weeks ago that almost 30 prophecies from the Old Testament were fulfilled within the 24 hours, just the 24 hours that Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified and buried. He was betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41.9. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12. He was mocked and scorned, Psalm 22.7. He was silent during his trial, Isaiah 53.7. He was crucified alongside criminals, Isaiah 53.12. His hands and feet were pierced, Psalm twenty two sixteen. His garments were divided among the soldiers. Psalm twenty two eighteen. He was thirsty and given vinegar to drink. Psalm sixty nine twenty nine. None of his bones were broken. Psalm thirty four twenty. His side was pierced. Zechariah twelve ten. And he was buried in a rich man's grave. Isaiah fifty three nine. And so obviously John wanted to make it clear to his readers, that Jesus was not a victim of a failed justice system that led to an innocent man being crucified. While all that may have been true, Jesus' death on the cross was a divinely orchestrated event devised and carried out by God the Father, exactly how he had promised it would happen in the Old Testament. And so John didn't want anyone to base their faith that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, solely on his eyewitness testimony. But ultimately, he wanted them to believe based on the fact that Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies about the promised Messiah. Again, notice in our text this morning, I just read it, verse 35, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. In other words, I've seen it. I watched this whole thing go down, and I believe, and I want you to believe as well. But then notice he goes on. He says, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Again, this is another reference to himself, John being the author of this gospel. Uh, If you remember back in verse 26, it says, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. We already saw that. And this phrase, the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, we know is a reference to him, to himself, to John. Uh, He was in, he introduced himself in this way uh, in John chapter 13, uh, in the upper room during the Lord's Supper, uh, that upper room discourse in chapter 13, verse 23, it says they were reclining, they're reclining on Jesus' bosom um, was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Uh, later, we're going to see in chapter 20, uh, verse 2, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord 
out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have led, laid him. And so they both ran together, Peter and John, uh, to, to the tomb. Uh, chapter 21, verse 7, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. John was on the boat and said, Hey, hey Peter, it's, it's Jesus. And then at the end of chapter 21, and this is really where we conclude that, that this, this one whom Jesus loved is, is John himself, John 21, verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? It's all coming together now. So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren, the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? And here it is, verse 24, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And so John was so humble, he never named his name, mentioned his name, mentioned himself by name, I should say, uh, in this gospel. He simply referred to himself as the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But even so, even so, this was a, a reference to his eyewitness testimony John wanted his readers to know that what they were reading wasn't just a fable or a legend or merely some secondhand heresy or hearsay, but a genuine eyewitness account of the events of Jesus' life and death. I saw it with my own eyes. And oh, by the way, if that's not enough for you, it's backed up by Scripture. I think a good question we should ask ourselves is how often do you seek to back up what you're saying to your spouse or to your children or to uh, your parents, if you are having a conversation with your parents, or your coworkers or classmates, how often do you seek to back up what you're saying with the Word of God, with the Scriptures? See, it's, it's not your word that, that matters. It's ultimately what God's Word says, and that's what God's going to use to bring people to faith in Christ. It's not your, your slick gospel presentation, right? It's the power of God through the Spirit of God using the Word of God. And so here we have uh, more of this eyewitness testimony of this, the final stages of the crucifixion. And here in verses 31 through 42, uh, John contrasted two groups of people and the key role that they both played in this epic drama we know as the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Who were these two groups of people? Number one, there were overt disbelievers. We see them in verses 31 through 37. And then there are covert disciples in verses 38 through 42. And so we're going to look at these two groups and the role that they played in the crucifixion and the burial of our Lord. First of all, let's look at the overt disbelievers. Overt obviously means they were out in the open. It was obvious that these people were disbelievers. And we're talking about here the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers. That's who is highlighted in verses 31 through 37. Notice verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation. That's important to understand what's the day of preparation. Well, continue to read, so that the bodies would not be remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. 
that day of preparation was obviously Friday, the day before the Sabbath, Sabbath being sundown, from sundown on Friday to uh, sundown on Saturday. And so this was not only another Sabbath, a weekly Sabbath, this was a high Sabbath. And the reason why it was a high day, as John records here, uh, is because it was a Sabbath during what? The Passover celebration. And so this was just not any other Sabbath. This was the Sabbath during the Passover. And so the Jewish religious leaders didn't want their highest, holiest annual celebration of their deliverance from slavery to Egypt to be marred by the sight of their fellow Jews, whether they were criminal or not, hanging on crosses by the hands of their present slave masters, the Romans. That's kind of like wah, 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 right here. We're celebrating our deliverance by God from our, 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 our slave masters in Egypt. And now, oh, oh, by the way, we're still in slavery now. Now it's just we're in bondage to Rome. Furthermore, Mosaic law required that anyone who was hung to death on a tree was not to remain there overnight. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. God said, through Moses, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day for he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And so I think that the Jews were uh, uh, most likely thinking of this passage uh, the law commanded that uh, these bodies not remain overnight or the land would be defiled. Not only was the, would the Passover be spoiled and their celebration spoiled, but the land would be defiled. Now again, once you see this, the Jewish religious leaders exhibiting their blatant hypocrisy in that they were so concerned about keeping the incidental details of the law, while at the same time they were corrupting justice and committing cold-blooded murder. Jesus confronted their hypocrisy earlier in Matthew 23, verse 23. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I'm sure that went over real big. There's a reason why they wanted him on a cross. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. These are just like the little herbs in your backyard garden. And you tithe. You make sure, oh, here's, I'm going to break off a little piece. I got to give 10% to the Lord. Really careful uh, to keep the, the little details of the law. And yet you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. And then he said this, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, what a great image that is, right? You're, you're being so careful. You got this thing you're going to drink, and, 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 and oh, I've got to be careful. There's a, little, there's a little gnat in there. I've got to pull that. I'm going to strain out that, get the gnats. Well, but then you end up drinking a camel. It's really a, a, a humorous. If it wasn't so sad, it would be a funny picture. And yet that, that's what they were known for, straining out gnats and swallowing camels. Hopefully none of us could be accused of that same kind of legalistic hypocrisy, but sometimes we, we care so much about little incidental things that really don't matter, and we leave the most important matters undone. 
One commentator said it this way, nothing more clearly illustrates the extreme hypocrisy to which their pernicious legalism had driven them. Talking about the Pharisees here. They were zealous to observe the minutia of the law while at the same time killing the one who both authored and fulfilled the law. They were scrupulously concerned that the land not be defiled, but were unconcerned about their own defilement from murdering the Son of God. Again, beloved, we need to guard against legalism, legalism and hypocrisy. Now, what was the big deal here? Well, the, normally the Romans would leave crucified people hanging on the cross until they died. And then they would let their rotting bodies be picked apart by the vultures and, and by other vermin. And this, this, this gruesome spectacle served as a, a, a deterrent to anyone else who might be thinking about or contemplating uh, some kind of rebellion against Roman authority. They would see this, 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 this sight of these people being crucified and be like, ooh, I don't want that to happen to me. I, I guess I'm not going to do what I thought I was going to do. We're familiar with this, this concept. In, in, in the 1800s, pirates, for example, were, were hung in chains so that passing ships might see their fate. If you watch Pirates of the Caribbean, right, teenagers, you remember Jack Sparrow floating by all these guys hung, hung there, and he kind of got nervous, right, that that might happen to him. Well, unfortunately, he didn't change his ways, right? But that was the point of, uh, of Jesus being, or these, these people crucified, being hung up there to, 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 to discourage crime and rebellion. And so the Jewish leaders returned to Pilate, and they asked that the legs of these criminals would be broken, which would cause them to die faster so they could be taken off the crosses sooner. And on certain occasions, uh, to hasten the death of someone who'd been crucified, soldiers would smash their legs with an iron mallet. Just imagine a sledgehammer. I'm taking a, a sledgehammer and just smashing the legs. And as a result of doing that, the, the victim would no longer be able to use their legs to push themselves up in order to keep breathing. That was part of the deal. They made them a little step and so they could push themselves up to get air in their lungs. But if your legs were broke, you couldn't do that and you would eventually just suffocate to death. And so the soldiers came, verse 32, and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, underline that, star that, they did not break his legs. So Pilate granted the Jewish leaders their requests. He ordered the soldiers to go break Jesus' legs along with the other two men who had been crucified on either side of him. And so they started with the two thieves, so one on his left and then the one on his right. But when they came to Jesus, they recognized he was already dead. And the last section, if you remember, ended. I just read it with Jesus bowing his head and giving up his spirit. He'd already been dead for a while now, right? Verse 30, therefore when Jesus had received the Sauron, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Normally, that's the reverse. Remember I said that? Normally, right, you die and then you go like this, right? You see it in the movies, right? They die and then they're like, well, he went and then he died, right? In other words, he, he, he put his head down to rest. It's almost like, okay, I'm going to bed now. I'm putting my head on the pillow now. And he gave up his spirit. 
Again, Jesus voluntarily gave up his life just as he said he would. Back in John chapter 10, he promised that no one was going to take his life from him. He was going to give it up. In John 10 verse 17, he said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I will lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So most people who were crucified, they would linger for sometimes two or three days. Can you imagine that? Hang on a cross for two or three days. But Jesus was dead in, in six hours or so. If you look at Mark chapter 15, he gives us a little chronology that Jesus was likely crucified, uh, nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. in the morning. And then at noon is when the sky grew dark and the earthquake and the splitting of the, the, the temple veil and all that stuff happened. Interesting, at high noon, the brightest time of the day normally was when it got the darkest. And then it says at 3 o'clock, Mark records, at 3 o'clock is when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then quickly after that, uh, said, into thy hands I commit my spirit, it is finished, right? And, and he was dead. In, by mid-afternoon. And so the fact that Jesus died a lot quicker than normal for victims of crucifixion, I mean, they, they tried to drag this out. It was this, this painful, uh, torturous death that they would try to drag out as long as possible. But the fact that he just died within six hours, again, proves that his life was not taken from him, but that he gave it up on his own volition. Verse 34 after they realized he was already dead, they decided not to break his legs. They, didn't, they put, the, put the sledgehammer away. But then one of the soldiers, says, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So whether out of, simply out of evil spite, kind of as a one last jab at this criminal in that soldier's mind, or maybe just to make sure that he was actually dead... This soldier jabs a spear in Jesus' side and blood and water came flowing out. Now, I found it surprising, even sadly funny, how some commentaries made such a big deal about the blood and water. I mean, some focus on the physiological significance of this blood and water, suggesting that this was evidence that due to bearing the weight of of man's sin along with God's wrath that Jesus' heart was so overwhelmed by this burden that his, that, his, that his heart literally burst, which was the ultimate cause of his death. Now, that's reading a little bit into the text, wouldn't you say? I mean, was heart, Christ's heart broken over the, the sin of man and the wrath of God that he had to bear? Absolutely, obviously. But to say that's why blood and water came out because his heart literally burst Physiologically, we don't know that. That's a guess. That's an assumption. Others spiritualize the verse by connect, connecting it to other verses in the Bible that mention blood and water and suggest that the blood and the water that came out of Jesus' side represented the two ordinances. That the blood represented communion and, and uh, the water represented baptism. I'm like, really? I mean, I, 
obviously it's, it's, it's best not to allegorize or over-spiritualize any text of Scripture, but, but simply interpret it as the mo- in the most normal, natural way possible. And so I will submit to you that I think that John, by mentioning the blood and the water, was simply emphasizing the fact that Jesus was what? Dead. He was dead, period. Don't make any more out of it than that. That's all he was trying to say and communicate, that he was dead. I also found it interesting that by the time John wrote his gospel that the swoon theory was already being uh, promoted to explain away the resurrection. Are you familiar with the swoon theory? There's some liberals today who still hold to this theory that, that basically Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but he just fainted. He just passed out. He just swooned. And so when he was put in the grave, the, the coolness of that, of that tomb revived him. And so he never really died. And so because he never really died, he never really resurrected. See, if you do away with the death of Christ, uh, you do away with the burial of Christ. And if you do away with the burial of Christ, you do away with the resurrection of Christ. You just pick it apart, and that's what liberals love to do. And, and obviously, this is completely false. And John was simply saying, listen, the guy died. And, and how do we know that? For sure. Well... You got some soldiers there that this was not their first rodeo. Okay, they have done this before many times, thousands of times maybe. They had lots of experience crucifying people and discerning whether somebody was dead or not. So you got the soldier's testimony, the fact they didn't use a sledgehammer to break his legs. Uh, Again, it's proof that they were convinced he was already dead. Further proof is that John was standing right there watching him die with his own two eyes. That's verse 35. And he who is seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe, what? That he actually died. And that, as you're going to see, he actually rose from the dead. Again, as I stated earlier, John didn't want us just to take his word for it, but to base our faith on God's word. And so he says, verse 36, if that's not enough for you, okay, and it shouldn't be enough, just my eyewitness, because I could say anything I want. I could lie to you and say, oh, I saw it when you really didn't, right? But just to be sure, he says, these things came to pass to fulfill what? The scripture, verse verse 36, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. So here's John is again referencing two other Old Testament prophecies regarding the death of the Messiah that were fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross. The first here in verse 36, not a bone of him shall be broken, is likely a veiled reference to either Exodus 12, 46, or Numbers 9, 12, which both specify that no bone of the uh, Passover lamb may be broken. You're familiar with the Passover uh, from Exodus chapter 12 that was instituted by God in Egypt so that the death angel who was coming to pass over, right, to pass over the land and kill all the firstborn of every living thing, uh, how were the, the Jews to be distinguished by the death angel? They were to kill a lamb, this perfect unblemished lamb without any broken bones, and they were to smear some blood over the door 
post of their house, and the death angel would come and pass over and spare their firstborn. Was that the only reason why God instituted the Passover? Just a one-time event to rescue the Jews in Egypt? Well, there was way more going on in that Passover, that, that, that initial Passover uh, celebration. God intended that celebration or that institution, the Passover, to foreshadow the sacrifice that the Messiah, his son, would make for his people by shedding his own blood on the cross to cover their sins. And John had already introduced Jesus as the Passover lamb. Back in chapter 1, through the testimony of John the Baptist, John, John chapter 1, verse 29, it says, when John saw Jesus coming to him, he said, behold, the, remember what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said it again in verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, actually calls Jesus our Passover as Christians. He says, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. And then Peter, uh, in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he talks about how we have been redeemed with, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We know that Christ is exalted in the book of Revelation as the lamb of God who sits on the throne. And we also know that that Jesus was crucified at the same exact time the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. I mean, you couldn't miss this analogy, this, this typology. And so he's simply, John's simply telling us, hey, listen, it said, it was said of the Passover lamb that no bone should be broken. And guess what? Jesus is our Passover lamb and not one of his bones is broken. He may have also had in mind... Uh, what David said about how God protects and, and delivers a righteous man, Psalm 34. Uh, maybe this is more of a direct quote uh, from, from David here in Psalm 34, verses 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Again, that could have been a messianic um, psalm there, Psalm 34 making reference to Christ. And so that's the first reference was to the Old Testament regarding the bones not being broken. But then he gives a second reference in verse 37. It gives another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. Anybody know where that reference is from? That's from the prophet Zechariah. And you need to turn back to Zechariah for this one. And I know that may be a little challenging for some of you to find. It's in that you know, section in your Bible that all the pages are stuck together because you haven't been there for a while. But just go, go back to Matthew and then just go back a few pages into the Old Testament. Uh, you have Malachi as the last book of the Old Testament and then the, the second to the last book is Zechariah. So find Zechariah for a second and then Zechariah chapter 12 and then look at verse 10. I love to hear the sound of those pages rustling around, those those pages are just breathing fresh air. And oh, we haven't been open forever back here. Thank you. So good to get some fresh air. 
Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, one of the most profound prophecies in the Old Testament of Christ's second coming. You ready for this? Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Sound familiar? That's what John was quoting. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Again, this prophecy, has it been fulfilled yet? Is this how the Jews responded to Jesus when he came the first time? Were they mourning over the fact that they pierced him? No. They were angry. They, were, they want to get rid of this guy. This is clearly a prophecy regarding Christ's second coming. When he returns, God will grant repentance to a remnant of the nation of Israel, and they will mourn as they finally realize that the Jews thousands of years ago rejected and killed their king when he came to save them the first time. And they'll embrace him by grace through faith alone. John mentions this in the book of Revelation, another book that he wrote after the gospel, right? He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he also wrote the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, he writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. And so again, these are references here to Christ's second coming when there will be a worldwide revival of people acknowledging Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so John simply points out the fact that he needed to be pierced so that they would mourn over him when he came a second time. And so here you have these overt disbelievers, you have the Jewish religious leaders, you have the Roman soldiers, and they're just doing what unbelievers do, right? They're just, they're just being sinful, they're just being evil, they're being wicked, evil, but they were, again, used as a tool in the hand of God to fulfill Scripture. Here they thought they were just acting in spite and, and, and according to their own will, but they were really uh, pawns, if you will, uh, for God to accomplish his, his perfect will with his son. I might just add to those of you that are not believers here this morning, you're a disbeliever for whatever reason, and you think you're out there just doing your own thing, and you're the boss of your life, um, guess what? You're under the, your life is under the sovereign control of God. And God is accomplishing his work in you and through you, whether you want him to or not. Because that's God. That's how he works. And so these are the overt disbelievers. Now, let's look at the covert disciples. The word covert simply means secret. Secret disciples in verses 38 to 42. And I'm referring here to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. 
Both of these men were members of the Sanhedrin, which was a special council made up of 70 men who served sort of like the Supreme Court in our country. Uh, The Sanhedrin served over the nation of Israel. They they were the ruling body, if you will, uh, of, of of the nation of Israel. And uh, neither of these men, Joseph or Nicodemus, agreed with the Sanhedrin's decision to have Jesus arrested and, and killed for blasphemy. And based on what they did after the death of Jesus, it's obvious that they, they believed that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the true Messiah. They, they weren't going along with all the, 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 their, their, their um, comrades were, were going along with. And, and I would say this, had these two men not stepped up and appealed to Pilate for Jesus' body and, and supplied the grave and the necessary spices to provide Jesus with a, a proper burial, Christ's body probably would have been thrown in a common grave with the bodies of the other two men who had been crucified alongside him. But that didn't happen because the scriptures say, what did the scriptures say? Isaiah 53, 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. In other words, he was crucified alongside the transgressors, yet he was with a rich man in his death. What does that mean, right? He was, he was, uh, he was assigned with wicked men at his grave, but at the same time, he was with a rich man in his death. Well, guess what? He was crucified between two criminals, between two, two, two wicked thieves, but he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very wealthy man. And so what follows here in verses 38 um, through 42 is a direct fulfillment of that prophecy of Jesus being with a rich man in his death. Here it goes, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission so he came and took away his body. So here we're introduced to, for the first time, Joseph of Arimathea, which incidentally, Arimathea was a town about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. But this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, appears in all four Gospels and always and only in connection with Jesus' burial. And let's look at these passages, by the way, because it gives us some, some insight into who this guy was. So turn back to Matthew for a moment, Matthew chapter 27. Let's see what Matthew says about him. This is Matthew 27, verse 57. They all say something about him, and they all give us a little different, uh, little take or spin on Joseph of Arimathea, and kind of helps us get a full picture of who this guy was. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. So we find out that he's a rich man from Matthew here. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb. And so John doesn't tell us that, but we find out from Matthew that that Joseph donated his own tomb for Jesus to to be buried in. And and he had had that hewn out of a rock. In other words, this was some... uh, 
tomb or grave that was carved out of some side of some hillside, maybe out of a cave, and, and you can go to Israel today and see some of these very same types of, of, of graves or tombs that are just, I mean, you're driving along in your tour bus, and all of a sudden the tour bus stops and says, hey, look out the left side of the bus, and there's this hole carved out of this cave with this rock, a big round rock that had been rolled away. It looks exactly like all the pictures you see of the tomb where Jesus was laid. Interesting. They're all over the place. So we find that out here that it, that it was his tomb and that he also, he was the one who rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. How about Mark? Let's see what Mark has to say about Joseph of Arimathea. Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, verse 42. Mark chapter 15, verse 42, it says, when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council. So now, see, we're getting some more details filled in here on this guy. Uh, we're kind of like uh, investigative reporters here trying to put the pieces of, together. So he's a rich man um, who donated his own grave uh, that was hewn out of a cave and that he was the one who actually rolled the stone in front of it. And, and he was also a prominent member of the council. What council? The Sanhedrin. That's somebody member Supreme Court-like justice system who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And so here was a devout Jew who was anticipating the coming of the kingdom. He was, he was waiting for the Messiah. And it says that he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then finally, let's look at Luke, see what Luke might add to this. Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Luke chapter 23, verse 50 and a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. So this is a good guy from a human perspective. And even from God's perspective, I mean, he was striving to be a godly man. He maybe didn't qualify as that legalistic hypocrite, right, like the other members of the council. Notice verse 51, he had not consented to their plan and action. So here he, we see he's a dissenter. To the rest of the Sanhedrin, a man from Arimathea, city of the Jews, again, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And so, putting all of this together, uh, well, verse 53, and he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth, and he laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been laid. So then, that one little last detail, th this was a brand new tomb. No one had ever been in this before. It was unused. And we, we know that because of what Luke says here. And so you have this devout, righteous Jew living in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. Uh, he was a well-known member. That's what he means by prominent. He was a well-known member of the Sanhedrin. Everybody knew him. And who John confirms here, and this is the detail that John brings to the table, he confirms that he was a secret, what? Follower of Jesus. That's what he says. He was, he was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. For fear of the Jews. And we know that earlier in John's gospel, John spoke, I don't know how else to say it, negatively about those who kept silent about their faith in Christ because they were afraid of being excommunicated by the Jewish leaders or, or concerned about their reputation. If you remember uh, in John chapter 9, when the, the religious leaders questioned 
the parents of the man born blind that Jesus healed, and they didn't believe it? There's no way this guy was healed. And so we're going to ask the parents if he was really blind. Was he really born blind? We're going to find out. And so they went to the parents, and they questioned them, and they said, oh yeah, he was born blind, no question about it, and this is our son. This is our son. He was born blind, and, and now he sees, and we don't really know how or why. But it says his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. We're talking about banished from Judaism. And so for this reason, his parents, well, you know what? Don't ask us. Ask him. He's of age. He's 21, whatever, right? You ask him. And then in John chapter 12, this is even more specific. In John chapter 12, you remember John said this in verse 42, nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. So some of these religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, were believing in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And then John adds this, for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. There were some man-pleasers who were putting their faith in Christ. But they kept it a secret. And so now we come to John 19, and we are introduced to one of those guys, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. So it appears that Joseph of Arimathea and maybe even Nicodemus were part of this group of rulers that John was referring to in, in, in chapter 12. But... The good news is this, even if fear had kept them from openly confessing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, after the Sanhedrin succeeded in their wicked plot to murder Jesus, they boldly acted on Christ's behalf, and they openly showed their faith and their devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have both Joseph and Nicodemus risking their reputations and maybe even their lives by publicly identifying with Jesus and ensuring that he had a proper burial. I mean, not only would they be excommunicated, persecuted, maybe even killed. I find it ironic that those who openly followed Jesus during his lifetime went into hiding at his death. All the disciples were like, they were gone. And yet those who had secretly followed him during his lifetime came out of hiding at his death. Interesting dynamic. One commentator said it this way, that these two men boldly identified with Jesus Christ at a time when he seemed like a failure and his cause hopelessly defeated. In other words, this was possibly the worst time to be associating identifying with Jesus Christ. Because all he was was a big failure. And so you have Joseph of Arimathea, and then we're introduced to Nicodemus, although um, we've already heard of this guy. Nicodemus, verse 39, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. Um, again, Nicodemus, another leading member of the Jewish council, uh, they, he's referred to in chapter 3 as the leading teacher, the main teacher of Israel. So this was a very um, influential leader, and he partners here with Joseph in laying Jesus' body to rest. Now again, 
this is Nicodemus's third appearance in the Gospel of John. You remember back in John chapter 3, we have to go back here, this is so profound. In John chapter 3, it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things or, or do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus responds, well, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? And Jesus goes on to talk about what it means to be saved. And, and, and Nicodemus is like, well, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? I mean, you're the, you're the smartest guy in town. And, and you don't get what I'm talking about? And, and we're never told. We're kind of left hanging like, okay, whatever happened to Nicodemus? Did he ever finally get it? Well, we get a little hint in John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 45. It says, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to him, why did you not bring him? They were supposed to go and arrest Jesus. And they came back and said, well, uh, 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 and they're like, well, didn't you arrest him like we said? Uh, no. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. And the Pharisees then answered him, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisee or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? They were concerned now. Like, hey, is any of us, any, any of us, any of any of us believing in, in this guy? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. In other words, the people that know the best—that's the leaders, the Pharisees. Have any of us believed in him? No. It's this, this crowd. They don't know the law. We know the law. That's not we're, we're, we're not following this knucklehead. But these guys are, because they're knuckleheads. Verse fifty. Nicodemus, who came to him before being one of them, being one of the Pharisees, said to them, "Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing. Does it?" They answered him, "You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee." So guess what? Nicodemus was sticking up for Jesus right there, wasn't he? And so whether or not he had come to faith at that, by that time, we're not sure. But surely, if there's any question in your mind, whether or not that interaction at midnight under the cover of, of night had an impact in his life, here is the evidence, here is the fruit that he had been truly born again. And I think we're going to get to shake Nicodemus's hand in heaven. Because here he comes with this generous mixture of spices weighing, again, this, uh, your, my Bible says 100 pounds, your Bible might say 75 pounds. Um, again, the different ways that the, 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 the Greek is translated there, uh, maybe 65 pounds according to modern standards. Uh, the, it doesn't really matter the exact amount. It, it was a lot. That's the point. It was a lot. Even, let's go with the lowest number, 65 pounds of myrrh and aloe. That, that, that amount was only ever used to anoint the dead body of a king or, or, or someone very, very important. And so they were given Jesus the grand treatment. And so the Jews didn't drain the blood or remove the organs like other pagan cultures in that day. You've probably all seen the Egyptian mummies and how that all works. They, they, the Jews didn't do that. 
they, they would take this, they, they would wash off the body and, and, and they would take this myrrh, which was a, a gummy resin, and they would turn it into a powder and they mixed it with alloys and they, they would re, uh, wipe it on the body to stifle the stench uh, as the dead body decomposed and they would ra- wrap, the shroud the body with linen, they would wrap it together and pack these aromatic oils and spices in this thing. And if, if you remember, when Jesus told them to open Lazarus's grave, what did they say? Whoa, whoa, time out, Jesus. He, it's going to stink. He's been in there four days, right? So the whole point was to, to wrap the body in these, in, with these spices. And, and, so, and, and I'm sure some of you have, have heard of the Shroud of Turin, Turin being Italy, where the shroud is, is presently housed. Um, this was a linen cloth, which was, um, I guess they say, discovered around the, in the 1200s, 1300s, and it bore the image of this man that some believe is Jesus. And, and this was the, the shroud that Jesus was wrapped in, in the grave, in the tomb. And, of course, the Catholic Church got a hold of that and made it a relic, right? Let's go, let's worship this, this, this piece of cloth with the face of Jesus, the body of Jesus. And, and uh, uh, this, this, this shroud has undergone numerous scientific tests over the years to determine whether it's fake or real. Uh, and um, they bring it out every few years for the public to look at. And, again, it seems to be... Uh, just another relic, um, making more out of something than it should. I guess you could put it maybe in the same category as the tortillas in Mexico that sometimes they find with Jesus' face on them, right? Um, you've also heard those stories, right? Uh, that happens, unfortunately. And so they took the body, verse 42, and they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified... There was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Again, you're getting the sense John wants us to to, to feel like uh, that they're hurrying here. He mentions again this day of preparation. They're in hurry-up mode, all right? If Jesus died around 3 o'clock, sun goes down maybe 6 or 7, right? They got their work cut out for them to get all that done in, in just a few hours, But in the providence of God, Joseph's unused tomb that he had had hewn out of this side of this mountain or this cave just happened to be in a garden that was right next to where Jesus had been crucified. And and that's, by the way, when you go to uh, Jerusalem or go to Israel, you know, the, the, the favored site for most evangelicals today um, of the, the crucifixion site is not the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, downtown Jerusalem, but it's outside the city walls. There's a place called Gordon's Calvary, and right next there to it is a garden, a beautiful garden, where they found a tomb that was carved into the side. And so they say this is probably where Jesus was, was, was buried. Again, in a private grave, not a public cemetery. And again, the proximity of the tomb was helpful considering, again, they were scrambling here to, to, to get Jesus' body in the grave before sundown when all the work had to stop, right? Because it was illegal to work after sundown when Sabbath had started. And again, this is all part of God's predetermined plan that the body of his son would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, right? He said that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. So you got to get him in the ground on Friday. So he's there for three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. 
And so they did the best they could with the time that they had, but apparently they were unable to do everything they wanted to do since some of the women, some of the same women that were there at the cross and at the tomb returned after the Sabbath with more spices to finish anointing Jesus' body. We know this from the Gospel of Luke. Listen carefully. Listen, uh, or Luke, this is Luke, 30, uh, Luke 23, excuse me, Luke 23, verse 55. It says, now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So they were watching this whole thing go down. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested, that's Saturday, according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, that Sunday, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And so maybe they were going to add another layer or another batch of, uh, of, of, of these uh, aromatic spices. And boy, were they in for a surprise. Verse 2, and they found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Oh, by the way, that's another theory is, oh, they just went to the wrong tomb. They were just mistaken, and they went to the tomb, and that's why they didn't find Jesus. That's why he wasn't there, because it was the wrong tomb. Listen, they were there the night, two, two nights earlier, right? Watching Joseph. They actually watched, I think they watched Joseph roll the stone uh, across the front of his own tomb. They, they, they were not mistaken. Jesus was gone. His body was gone. And as the old black, black preacher once said, it's Friday, but Sundays are coming. It was Friday, but Sunday is a coming. And so God used both these over-disbelievers and these covert disciples to set the stage for what? The resurrection. And and I I think we need to be careful here that we don't miss the significance of the burial. We usually love to focus on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We even actually say it that way. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That we are saved by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Like, what about the burial? We, we just kind of skip right over the burial. But we need to understand that it is one of the key tenets of the gospel. In fact, when Paul gave a summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he was careful not to skip over the burial. Listen, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, here it is, the gospel, that you must believe in order to be saved, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was what? Buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Listen, if Jesus had never died, if he never really died, he would have never really been buried. And if he had never been really buried, he would have never been really raised from the grave. And if Jesus had never been raised from the grave, we would never have the hope of experiencing victory over sin and death and have the hope of living forever in heaven. This is very, very important. In fact, we all participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is 
key for us to live holy lives that are free from sin. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. He said this, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And then he goes on to talk about how those who have died with Christ can now live, and now we are no longer mastered by sin, and so we're to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul said it again in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. These are truths for our Christian lives today. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. Listen, the burial of Jesus Christ is for the road today. It's for our lives today. Because when you became a Christian, right? That means when he died, what? You died. When you were buried, when he was buried, you were buried. When he rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. That's what it means to be in Christ. Just finally, I find it intriguing that according to one commentator, neither Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus appear in the historical Jewish records or traditions of, of that time. And so what that may mean is that their names were erased from the records by the other members of the Sanhedrin because they considered them to be traitors to Judaism. These were not like no-name guys. These were very prominent members of the Sanhedrin, and you can find a lot about all these other guys, but not about these two guys. It's like, where'd they go? And so I think we could safely say that these two men sacrificed much to serve their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our service for Christ should be equally courageous and equally costly. It just so happens that they were both wealthy men. I think a great example for those who God has blessed with great financial means and resources that these men model for you how to use your financial and material means to serve the cause of Christ. It's a great example. Joseph donated his own tomb. Nicodemus donated the burial spices. I mean, Jesus didn't have any money. To pay for his burial, his, his family, his followers, either too poor or too scared uh, of the authorities to assume the responsibility. And thankfully, his crucifixion was so compelling to these two men that these, these secret disciples, right, it drew them out of hiding to boldly identify with Christ and to sacrificially serve him. You know, you might be one who's kind of flying under the radar when it comes to people knowing that you're a Christian. And I hope that as we have been looking here at the, the death of Jesus Christ, that it would be so compelling that you couldn't stay silent. You can't remain the secret. You can't keep it a secret that you're a Christian. That you want to come out of the closet, if you will, and let everybody know that you are a Christian. You want to identify with Christ and you want to serve him with your life. Even if that means you lose everything. Your reputation, right? 
even your life. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and just how it stirs our, our souls and, Lord, challenges our, our minds and hearts. And, and we just um, desire to, again, to take all this truth into our hearts and our minds and then, Lord, to see it uh, produce great fruit, Lord, in our actions and our attitudes and our words and our lifestyles. And so, Lord, I know that you're hitting all of us at different places this morning, but I pray that each of us would be sensitive to what your spirit wants to say to us today through this text, and Lord, that as we um, leave this place, Lord, we would truly be different and and more like Jesus as a result of our, our time spent looking at his life and his death. We pray this in his name, amen.